I'm Bruce Worson, pastor of His Place Community Church. The following message came from a Sunday morning right here at His Place. Is it ever good to hate? And if so, when, what, and how? When Jesus appointed his 12 mostly teenage apprentices on that seaside hillside, right near his headquarters, right, in Capernaum, he began right then and there, right as soon as he chose them, he began to teach them right there publicly. Sermon on the Mount. A lot of us don't realize it's directed at his disciples. But he started to teach them to love their enemies and to preemptively pray for their persecutors. Not so much to change them. You know, you ever think, well, what are we praying? God, just help him not be such a jerk. <laughs> and the guy's like, you know, there's a whole free will thing, right? So not so much to change them but to prepare themselves so that if and when, specifically in this case, they're slapped across the face, as was the right of their religious authorities as a disciplinary action in public, so that if they're slapped across the face and their tempers are flared, they would be well, what I like to call, prepared. <laughs> a lot of us need to be well prepared for what we encounter on a daily basis. But they would be well prepared to turn to him in that moment. Oh, how hard would this be? The other cheek for another slap. Because who would ever expect that? You know? He said, do that. Rather than to lash out or strike back or retaliate. Because that is what will ultimately change them. Right? So the question is. Pastor John, whole Pastor Noah, myself, we were in a sermon meeting going round and round. I couldn't have preached this message last week. I feel like I love the perspective that comes from other believers. We got our Bibles out trying to figure out where this stuff, this hate versus love stuff. So see what you think about all this. Because us, you and me, should we turn the other cheek when it comes to, say, terrorists? That's our enemies. One, I mean, we have many, but how about corrupt leaders, child molesters? Those are our enemies. We're, we're sure commanded to love them and to pray for them. I wish you could have been at a sermon meeting. It was, it was a hot one. And pray for them. But to what end can we not fight against them and, if need be, try to destroy them? By the way, we came out of that meeting going, we, this is just funny. You take God at his word, he has answers. Our problem is we pick one or two things and we go, that don't make sense. And so between us, we're just diving, we're digging, we're going. It's like, well, look at this. There's really good, solid answers. You see, many, many people see Jesus as a pacifist, but he wasn't. That's John Lennon. That's, that's, I don't know why I like that joke so much. That's John Lee. He was the pacifist, not Jesus. Jesus absolutely was the embodiment of love. But he was no pacifist. If you read the stories, remember in the temple when he overturned the tables. Have you ever noticed the story says that he made himself a whip? 
I just want to see the Jesus movie that opens on Jesus sitting in the temple making a whip. You don't know what he's working on. <laughs> it says he made himself a whip and he chased out the sinners with a good thrashing. We've got to balance our picture of Jesus. The night before the cross, he told the 12 it was time to buy a sword. Y'all have swords? You need to get a sword. Right? And yet... It's so confusing. When Peter uses his sword, this is the only reason he has one, because Jesus said, get a sword. Peter uses his sword that night, whoop, goes the air, to defend the Lord. And Jesus tells him, put that away. You know why? Because, I mean, poor Peter, he's got to be like, but I only have it because you said get that sword. Can't win. But, but no, here's the thing. His timing was off, that's all. His timing was off. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You know, it's like you can read the room, Peter. This is not the time for that here. Oh, yeah. Got the ear back on. This is bad timing is all. Because you see, from way back early on, we are told there is a time for everything. You know, down here, under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. Time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill, frankly. And a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to be silent. And a time to speak. A look at these. A time to love. And a time to hate. A time for war. And a time for peace. Turns out, turning the cheek is not a command for every occasion. Therefore, in everything, we must first turn and read the room and ask the Lord the most crucial question of all. What time is it? What's it a time for right now? It, a time for love, a time of hate, a time of war, a time of peace. The birds didn't write that. The Lord did. That's his song. That's his work. We are told that all scripture, including what I just read you, is given by inspiration of God for correction and instruction. Like, balance you out. So that the follower of Christ may be complete and thoroughly equipped. So we need to know some of these more obscure things that we don't normally think on. Like uh, this song, Psalm 18, that King David sang. The Lord is my rock. All, and it's like he has to let you know this in advance of what he's about to say. All his laws are before me, okay? I've not turned away. It's like, fasten your seatbelt, but just, I've not turned away from his decrees. This is all part and parcel here. He's also not turned the other cheek. He says, and I've really condensed it, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise and do more evil. You armed me with strength for the battle. And I destroyed my foes. Well, they cried for help. But there was no one to save them. To the Lord, even. But he didn't answer. Because we must come to him on his terms. He doesn't come to us on ours. 
And then he goes on. I beat them as fine as dust. I poured them out like mud in the streets. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God my Savior. I see why this song was so popular. You know? It's a church song. Let's all sing. You exalted me above my foes. From violent men you rescued me. Because there is definitely, biblically, a time for that. We recently read a couple weeks ago how Jesus said to leave our gift at the altar. Remember that? Leave your gift at the altar to go to a brother or sister who has something against you and uh, to do your best uh, to, make, to make it right and thereby uh, return and offer that living sacrifice that lays down your own life and to show love. But we need to balance it because Jesus also said in Matthew 18, if your brother now sins against you, Go and show him his fault. If he won't listen, take one or two others. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church. Well, then just treat that guy the way you would a pagan or a tax collector. Records Matthew. The once shunned and shamed tax collector. I missed the part in there where it says, turn the other cheek. I don't see that at all. All I see is how we're told to treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. But then, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Because I don't think he's telling us to do what he wouldn't do. So we better look to his example, right? Did he shun and shame? Of course not. Did he befriend and love? Of course. Remember Zacchaeus? Wee little man? Zacchaeus? Up the tree. Jesus called him out of his tree, right? Honored him. The guy had, had what's the, uh, the righteous word for this? Uh, swindled. Uh, swindled everybody, right? Because the I'll tell you after church. <laughs> but this guy had swindled everybody. And Jesus uh, honored him and stayed with him and ate with him and befriended him in order to save him. But I'll tell you, he didn't trust him any further than he could throw him, which actually might have been further because he's a wee little man. Nonetheless, (laughs) he didn't trust him. The same goes for all the sinners. You really need to hear this. The same goes for every sinner that Jesus loved and befriended that received him as their savior. He didn't trust him. He loved him. You know how we know this? You know how I can just stand here and act like I, I know this? Because it's just right in Scripture. It's in John 2. It says many people were convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. And so they put their trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them. For he knew mankind to the core. He sure loved them, laid down his life for us. But you see, trust and love are two different things. And trust has little to do with love. For instance, you might absolutely love your 14-year-old daughter's 16-year-old male friend. Okay? Love the guy. But would you trust him to drive her to San Jose for a little vacay getaway? No way, San Jose. Are you out of your tree, kid? Read the room. There is a time for trust, and it ain't now. But I sure love you. I love you. I look forward to the day I could trust you. Right? 
So all that to say, yes, turn the other cheek, but don't be a blockhead. Just don't be a blockhead. Those seaside instructions were very time specific. And they, they make perfect sense only when we see them in context. When we see that he's speaking to his representatives, his ambassadors, regarding specifically face slappers, face slapping harassers, not life threatening killers. That's when it's time for the sword, right? Because when God's enemies cross God's line, Oh, different laws apply because he also commands us and expects us to defend and rescue the innocent and the oppressed and to fight against their tormentors. That's why it's a worship song because David was doing what we have to somehow figure out how to do and that is to do all that with a pure heart, with a pure heart. Which is what Jesus was working on, on him that, that time by the sea. He's saying, uh, you've heard that it, is, it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, like that's the, that's the quick solve right there. Uh, no, that's an incredibly out of context uh, excuse for knee jerk retaliation and reflexive revenge that's been wrenched from an entire chapter in Exodus covering criminal compensation. And he says, well, you've heard that, right? <laughs> yes, we have. But I tell you, do not resist an evil cheek-slapping person. It's just a slap. So if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Because that's how you win him. That's how he sees something in you that's greater than what he's got in him. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So should we turn the other cheek to a terrorist? Yes, absolutely. If their terror is nothing more than a slap in the face. Keep things in context. I want you to take a look at these recurring phrases. This is really cool. Where he says, you have heard that it was said. That's because it's scripture. That's why he said, it's scripture. You've heard it was said. Uh, But I say, but I tell you. And boy, people wrestle with this. Like, what's going on here? Is Jesus amending scripture? Was it written wrong? And he's like, we need to tweak that. It really shouldn't have said it that way. Is he not the same yesterday, today, and forever? Will the word of the Lord not stand forever? Uh, No, no, he is, and it will. Because he came to reveal it, instill it, and fulfill it, not denounce it. There's a really cool little code that Jesus is using, and it's fun once you realize what he's doing. If he says, it is written, as he does three times when he's tempted, for instance, says it is written, well, he's pointing to the authority of Scripture. No, I'm not going to do that. Is written. But when he says, well, you've heard that it was said, but I say. He's pointing to a false teaching or a misapplication of scripture. The way that they were all being taught to abuse that eye for eye quote from Exodus is strictly forbidden in Leviticus. It's like, oh yeah, we don't go with that one. 
<laughs> we just like taking this. This serves our purpose. But Leviticus 19 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. And look what it then says. Now, you, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor. You know, yeah, yeah, I can rebuke your neighbor. And not bear sin, you know, by having hate in your heart because of him. You shall not take vengeance. That's not what we're doing here. Nor bear any grudge. That's not what it's all about. Because you shall love your neighbor. Even when you surely rebuke him. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, I am the Lord. It's like, because don't you be looking for a workaround on that. And so now when it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, the first half, we saw it. And that's right there, Leviticus. Just saw it. Any idea where they got the second hate your enemy half? It's another worship song by David that they sang in the church. We should, we should sing this sometime, not really. Uh, <laughs> it's a different era. <clears throat> oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O oh Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And now everybody's saying, I hate them with perfect hatred. <laughs> it's like, oh my. And really that word perfect is nice because it makes it kind of sound like good hatred. It just means complete and utter. I hate them with complete hatred, which kind of means perfect hatred. And then he tells you what he means, meaning I count them my enemies just as they are God. He stands against them. Stand. So, very important, look what he adds. So search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there is any wicked way in me, a wicked way, you know, having hate for the person, even when I'm standing against with this righteous hatred for what's happening, check my heart, there's no hate inside my heart here for the person, and lead me, if there is, you know, search me and see, and lead me, you know, the opposite way of the wicked way, in the way everlasting. Not only is David repulsed by God's enemies, what they're doing, as though they were his own enemies, he asked the Lord to search his heart to make sure he hasn't allowed the sin of hate to make its way in. But, just like the other little fortune cookie, <laughs> this thing, Psalm uh, 139 here was being used to direct devout Jews to hate Romans. God wants you to hate them. Hate tax collectors, hate pagans, hate all your personal enemies. You know? But those aren't God's enemies. These are those that Christ came to save. The teachers were distorting David's heart and hate. They had dissected and wrongly divided. You, you know, you ever hear about the rightly dividing the word? This is how they wrongly divide it. Wrongly dividing the love your neighbor limb from Leviticus and Frankenstein it to Psalm 139's dismembered hatred of enemies, thus creating uh, their own monstrous saying that sounds so biblical. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's Bible. That's Bible. <laughs> but in Psalm 139, David not only hates what God hates, but as God hates. Which means to completely stand against the sin. 
But don't have hate in your heart for the sinner. And that's the only way David's heart could be searched and his sinless hatred found sacred. Because although there's a time to love and a time to hate, to stand against, there's never a time to harbor hate in your heart. Ever. Even against those we're standing against. And those times, is it a time for war, a time for peace, a time for love, a time for hate? Even those times are not determined by our emotions, but God's definitions. We go to Him for direction. It can be confusing when it comes to our personal relationship with this world. Look at these two verses. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son. So the father doesn't have the love of the father in him? Is God confused? Is he double-minded? Is he undecided? Or are we called to cultivate some kind of love-hate relationship with this world? It's that one. We're supposed to love it and hate it. Because there are two worlds clearly referred to and defined in Scripture. One we're called to love and one we're called to hate. Two worlds, worlds apart. The world's people and the world's system. You love the world's people. For God so loved the world. The people. If you love the world, the sinful system. And when John warns us to not love, which is like a nicer way of saying hate, (laughs) to not love the world, he defines which one he means. He says everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the way of the world. The world that we stand against, the, the sinful system. And its desires pass away. But the man, the man who God so loves, that he does the will of God rather than the world, lives forever. So we must work to save the sinful, even as we work to slay the system. It's a love-hate relationship. Trouble is, as sinners ourselves, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, we have a really hard time hating sin without hating other Sinners, right? But sacred hatred loathes wrongdoings while it loves wrongdoers. That's Jesus, and I want to be like Jesus. Because there's a time to love and a time to hate. And so many times, both times occur at the very same time in the same person. So it gets a bit tricky what am I aiming at what am I aiming at Uh, think of it this way would you want an oncologist who didn't hate cancer I don't mind a little cancer (laughs) no I kind of like cancer no I want them to absolutely hate cancer want to destroy cancer why hates good that time well what if the doctor hates the patient no Hates bad that time, same time. So be mindful of what your aim is and what time it is. Because we all need to hate what God hates, but love who 
God loves. Because these are those that our great physician came to save. I'm not saying it's easy by any stretch. I'm just saying it's holy. It's right. And it's trustworthy. It shows our trust in the Lord because your right hand is Old Testament here. That's Jesus' nickname in the Old Testament, the right hand of God. Your right hand will, will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. Okay? For they intended evil against you. Apparently thinking uh, our patient doctor is either powerless or a pacifist. So be angry. And yet do not sin. Let's read that together. Be angry and yet do not sin. One more time, drive it in. Be angry and yet do not sin. That's the whole message right there. That's the, I got my own fortune cookie right there. Be angry yet do not sin. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase the more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Therefore, you who, you who, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Can't say it any more direct than that. Don't you think it's time? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we love you, we worship you, and we ask you for strength for the battle. Holy Spirit, guard our hearts as we come against sin so that which we hate won't work its way in. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for loving us and leading us in the way everlasting. And everybody said, Amen. Well, thanks for listening in. Why don't you join us on a Sunday morning? If you'd like more information about the church, just point your browser to hisplacechurch.com. Until next time, may the Lord bless you, keep you, and make his face shine upon you.